0: If you'll take out your Bibles, we're going to be turning to Acts chapter 28. We're on the final chapter, and we're still sailing along with the Apostle Paul. He's making his way to Rome. This is something that has been on his mind, clearly, since at least chapter 19 and verse 21, when he's in Ephesus. He's already saying, I must go to Jerusalem, and I after that I'm going to go. I need to go. I must go to Rome. And so those reminders brought in other ways, as there are those who warn him not to go to Jerusalem. He went, you saw what happened there, and he began a journey of sorts, a long journey. And he's been through quite a few miles. He's been through with the three missionary journeys, over 7,300 miles he's logged. And now with this journey to Rome alone over 2300, he's over 10,000 miles that he's traveled on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to represent him. And I like what was already pointed out as we've gone through this all these months, actually the past three years, we have noted all of the various things that the Lord was pleased to put the apostle through in order to test his faith in order to make himself known to all of those in the known world at the time. He's covered a lot of ground. He's been around the whole section that was referred to as the Levant, which is the uh, section on the whole eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean Sea that sweeps around to Alexandria, northern Africa, and up and around by Cilicia. All of that and all of Palestine is referred to as... Uh, ancient as uh, the Levant area, and he's been pressed on from there, been in Asia, of course, uh, a few times he's been up into Asia, and he has gone up into that uh, little passage from Troas, sailed that little bit of water up into what is considered Europe, brought the gospel to Europe as he went up into Macedonia, went down to the Peloponnesus, down to Corinth, back down and around, and he repeated his route. So he's been a lot of places. He's not only been there to give the gospel, he has returned, you remember, that he's make that, to be sure that they have leadership in those churches and that they're making disciples. So it's more than just presenting the gospel. It's following up to establish churches. And he's done all of that, almost single-handedly. He has his companions, Barnabas at first, then Silas and Timothy and others but he has been just mightily used of the Lord. And so is Luke, really. Luke, who's given us, what is it, 54 of the chapters in the New Testament? The 24 in his first gospel of Luke, and then part two of Luke is the book of Acts, 28 chapters there. He's given us, I think that makes it around a third of the New Testament. His writings are important, so we don't want to overlook Luke. This is one of his finest literary pieces, some would argue, calling it a, a narrative theology from the apostle. It's been referred to, So, or from uh, Luke, rather, excuse me. So uh, this is a, a fine work, not only in a literary sense. He's a physician. He's a smart man. He writes well in high-level Greek, but he's also a detailed man, and we're grateful for that because as we look back over the details of what he wrote about, where Paul went and all the things that happened, and we look at the geography of the things that supposedly took place, and we look at, and if you care to take the time to study ancient first century uh, mariner practice, the way they sailed and how they handled ships and how they navigated, all of these things are just spectacularly accurate and should get our attention, as I pointed out before. So he's looking forward to getting to Rome. That's like an understatement. He wants to get there. There's nothing more that he wants to do than to get to Rome. He's been through the two weeks, 14 days of being tossed and battered on the ship, uh, the Alexandrian fleet hauling ship that they hooked a ride with and now is being tossed about, battered, hung up, just outside of uh, between Salmone, a little island, right off the coast of Malta. And it has got hung up on a sandbar. And they cast out the four anchors to the stern so that the bow would be pointed to head in. But they couldn't head in because they're stuck on a sandbar. So now the waves continue to batter that ship. It's literally blowing it apart. So in the morning, they pop off the jump off the ship those that could swim first jump off the ship and help those who are looking for pieces of debris to get them in safely and they all make it 276 of them God promised 276 and it wasn't 275 it wasn't 274 it was 276 persons living souls that were crawling up on that shore in Malta and We're struck by a number of things last week as we're looking at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1 through verse 6. We looked at what do we find Paul doing? Now, all that he's been through, what do we find him doing? Picking up sticks. Why is that in God's eternal word? Because it is indicative of the man, of Christ in the man, and how he is so such an example of selflessness he's part of us he's part of the fallen human race i mean we could understand if this is christ and we see that with christ in its stellar and 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 perfect form but paul is amazing he gets your attention because he's always thinking of other people even when he realized that they hadn't eaten they hadn't eaten because i'm sure most of the food has been spoiled but who can eat with the ship being tossed about in a tempest But he cares about them, and I want you to eat, and he makes food, and he prays before them. He reassures them. He's an encourager. He's reassuring them. An angel came, and my Lord, the Lord that I belong to, the Lord that I worship, has said, not a soul will be lost. The ship and all of its cargo will be lost, but not a soul will perish. And he goes through that whole exercise, but in his trying to help, And it's trying to stoke the fires to keep the rest of all of the the people that are freezing. It's a cold rain going on, by the way. They just come out of the cold sea, probably late November. It's very, very cold. And so the natives extended their kindness, unusual kindness, the text says, and built a big fire for them. So Paul wants to help servant-hearted man, selfless man. He's picking up sticks to put and what he thinks is a stick and it wasn't, it was a snake. It was actually not any snake. It was a viper, a pit viper. It's a poisonous snake that attached itself to his hand. So immediately they went from their, the natives went from their unusual kindness to you must be a murderer. You, it escaped our attention, but it didn't escape uh, the goddess Justice. So, They sat around and waited for him to die. And what did he do? He shook off the snake and carried on, didn't he? So now he went from being a murderer to what? Being a god. You must be a god. And it really shows the sort of vacillating of the human nature, isn't it? It's just um, the way we judge one another comes to mind. I mean, their judgments based upon the bad things that happen and then based upon the good things that happen and bringing to our attention. You should never judge somebody on either one of those things. So here we have Paul. He's doing fine. He's serving. They're warming up. He's a God now in their minds. So we pick it up in verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They were also uh, they also honored us greatly, and when they were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after the one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome... Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Father, thank you for this journey. Thank you for how it helps us on our journey. These aren't just uh, ancient stories that are to remain on the bookshelf. Some dusty archive of things that happened 2,000 years ago but have no relevance to us. That's not true. This clearly is a metaphor for all of our lives All of us who have set sail according to your charter for us. Those of us who have a life that has not at times been very smooth. The waters have been very choppy. There have been beautiful days to sail. But then there have been those storm tossed days where, yeah, we too get to the point where we lose all hope. Thank you, Lord for your promises. Thank you for your faithfulness to us to deliver us on the shore of whatever destination might be in comparison in our minds, in our lives. For you've appointed a journey for all of us. And so we pray, Lord, that we would glean from your work with the Apostle Paul the inner work, the heart work of this man that we too, O oh Lord, Lord, would respond with the Christ-likeness that he was faithful to imbibe himself and express through words and actions of compassion and mercy and wisdom and knowledge. What a demonstration of love from this man that you've given us. Help us now as we conclude the journey to Rome, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, Paul had a deep desire to get to Rome. I mean, not just to preach to the Jew and then to the Greek. He makes it clear in another place, and I'm going to read to you from Romans, that it's not just those two categories of people that he's given the gospel to. Because that wouldn't be the whole of all people groups, would it? Not really. Let me show you what I mean. There's also the barbarians, isn't there? We have what are described as barbarians, which uh, isn't a derogatory term. It's simply a term that they came up with, the civilized Romans and Greeks for those natives that would invade and speak a foreign language and it sounded like they were saying bar, 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 and they didn't understand them. That's where the word comes from. It's it's no more eloquent than that. I mean, that's it. It just means someone who is uncivilized or uneducated, uncultured. Uncivilized, uneducated, and uncultured. Aren't we glad? Yes, we are glad that he brings the gospel to the uncivilized, the uneducated, and the uncultured. Let me read what I'm talking about. Romans 1, right at the beginning, the opening chapter of that Wonderful, powerful, soteriological book. Verse 11 to 15, For I long to see you, so he can't wait to go. Why? That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to whom? Barbarians. Both to the wise and to the foolish. He doesn't say the Jew and the Greek here. He's referring to the Gentiles. And what does Gentile mean? Who are the Gentiles? All other nations besides Israel. <laughs> Folks, that's everybody. Thank God. That's the natives. The uncultured, the uneducated, the uncivilized. All of them. So he makes that clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 28 and 29, opening this great epistle. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are, so that no one may boast in the presence of God. Nobody can boast. You see, because the barbarians aren't educated, they're uncultured, they're uncivilized. So if now they have the whole of the scriptures illuminated to them by the experience of their salvation in Jesus Christ and they're taking on the holy spirit and making these truths known to them they can't attribute that to anything in their lives can they See someone like Paul might be tempted to say well you know I don't I don't even know if I'd have figured all this out if I hadn't had the education that I did under Gamaliel I finished with a 4.0, so there's that. I'm a Roman citizen, he could say. I'm no mean city, no, I was Tarsus in Cilicia. Good point to that. I can't wait to talk to the low, to talk to the despised, to talk to the uneducated, to the talk to the uncouth, to talk to the uncultured. Because when they see Christ, they explode with gratitude and appreciation. They're a huge empty vessel ready to be filled with the love of Christ. You can't stop them. You can't slow them down. You can't keep them quiet. And it all brings glory to God. That's what Paul's looking forward to. Let's look at our first verse under the hospitality of Publius. This hospitality, we saw the unusual kindness that the natives, natives extended. We talked about that last time. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island. This is like the mayor. Okay, This is the Roman uh, official in charge because the Roman government oversees this, this island chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Hospitably. Philophronos in the Greek. Hospitably. This this word has to do with um, the the Greek writers uh, that were extant at the time that used that term. It carried the idea of, of entertaining strangers. That was... But when you look at this, when you study it historically, you'll find out, yes, this is yet another area, regrettably, that we've diminished, watered down to where it just really is kind of inviting people over to your house for a meal. This was much greater than that. Back then in these days, and maybe in some other lands to this day, where they can put Christians sometimes to shame with their understanding of what hospitality actually meant to them back in their day. So throughout the Mediterranean world, hospitality was recognized as a sacred duty. This is something you did as a worshipful act to God. You were hospitable. You opened up your home. In Egypt, it had to do with uh, earning yourself a favorable existence in the next world. So it's not just Mediterranean, it's not just the Jews, it's not just in Judaism, it's also in Egypt, it's also in Rome as well. The Romans considered it a sacred obligation themselves, hospitality. So if we're thinking, you mean just opening up my house and feeding someone, having a good conversation, we're missing something big. I spent quite a bit of time looking at what the scripture has to say about this concept. Because I think it's so woefully lacking. Not that we don't open up our houses to each other, and we do. We love that. We really enjoy going to each other's house and having sweet fellowship and sharing a meal together. These are wonderful things that we enjoy in the body of Christ. But we need to to set it. Let's just try to, for today, juxtapose that over against what their understanding of this word meant. Yeah, we're all about convictions here, right? Why should, le- why should we let this slide by? We're not going to. So it starts in Leviticus. We get back to our Judeo-Christian ethic on hospitality. We can see it in Leviticus 19.34. You shall treat the stranger... Oh, wait a second. I thought we would just... Isn't it hospitality just among us? When's the last time you invited a stranger into the house? Come on over. What's your name? (laughs) Got a meal for you. Looks like you're struggling a little bit. Maybe I can help you. Maybe they need clothes. Maybe they need a ride somewhere. Maybe they need medical help. This is how they thought. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you and you shall love Him. Okay, let's draw the line there, shall we? Let's not get crazy. Love them? Well, yeah, again, we've got to get back to what the script- how the Scriptures define love. We think of love, we think of love for our wife and our family. That's pretty safe, isn't it? Well, I guess not always, huh? It's, it's easier to do. Because we're stuck with each other <laughs> in our families. And I can do that because they'll do that with me. That's safe. Let's just stay, let's keep it right there. No, you're to love somebody completely strange to you, some, somebody who's odd, somebody who doesn't act like you or look like you. You're supposed to love them in the sense that you care for them, that you care about them. That's that's the conviction here. Deuteronomy, it's repeated again, Deuteronomy 10 and verse 19. Love the sojourner. Therefore, you were, f- therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Don't you hope that you'll be treated the way that you were treated? Don't you, don't you hope? Because remember, the Egyptians are the one that looked at it as something that will provide a great place for them in the netherworld, that was, that was their hope. That's their motivation. But we're not talking about motivations here. We're just talking about what the act of love looks like and to whom we express it. So, strangers, what is, what is a sojourner? Somebody who's just passing through. When's the last time you had somebody that qualifies in that category in your home? Hey, I don't want them around my kids. I I don't want them around my wife. A stranger? You mean somebody I don't know at all? Like from Adam? Not our Adam. The original Adam. Christians are called to hospitality. Let's start there. Last week we talked about the importance of kindness and goodness. The way the Bible defines it, especially if you're looking at Galatians 5, 22-23, where the list of the nine fruits of the Spirit, you have patience, kindness, and goodness, Christotes, which is the kindness, that's an internal thing. It's it's you're a kind-hearted person, we often will say, which, because you're kind-hearted internally, it produces the good works that you were saved in Christ for, Ephesians 2, verse 10. Works that were prepared for you before when? For the foundation of the world. Before the world was made, those you were meant to have the kindness of Christ that actually was exercised in the things we're talking about here. So it's very closely related. It's obviously part of the overall general rubric of Christian love. But biblical hospitality goes much further than having somebody over for a meal. As nice a thing as that is to do. It has to be an integral part of kindness and goodness. Something that we understand is part of that. So we're not not just... um, Excuse me a moment. For instance, Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's why we're here, not just to share among ourselves, which is very much the case, and I'll show you some verses that have to do with that in a moment, but with the sojourner with the stranger, clearly with your neighbor. So we look at the Good Samaritan, and you know the story there. The Good Samaritan, chapter 10 of Luke, from 25 to 35. We see a man walking along, and he's assaulted. He's mugged, we, to put it in our vernacular. He's beat bad. He's beaten, left for dead. Levite walks by, a priest walks by. Why do you think Jesus, when he tells that story, has two religious people walking by? The priest and the Levite walk past, leave them there bleeding. I'll pray for you. And of course, the Samaritan stops. And he cleans him up and he binds his wounds. Does he know the person? Doesn't say that he does. So probably not. It doesn't matter. When the vestiges of the kindness of God himself rise up in his image and likeness in the man, he acts. He doesn't think. We see that sometimes in the news, don't we? These guys that run over and pull that woman's car out of that sinkhole if you saw that in the news that thing was about there was a break in the water main and it the whole place was flooded and it it blew out all of the the soil so there was a sinkhole there and water flooding everywhere and her car was going down they just act they act that's the kindness of God showing up in the good act that they perform So he does that and he even makes sure he takes, he doesn't just bind him up and say, you're going to be okay. All right, I'll pray for you. Give me a call if you need anything. No, he takes him to the end, doesn't he? He makes sure that he's going to be tended to in the next several days and who on whose dime, who's paying for it? He is. It costs something. His plans had to be changed. He dug deep into his pocket to cover the costs. That's what I've learned about biblical hospitality, just for starters. So Jesus asks at the end of it in verse 36 and 37, out of the Levite and the priest and the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Remember, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. Yeah, that's like other people. Who do you think it was? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So it's a part of mercy. Mm -hmm. Can we lack mercy sometimes? Can it begin to fade in times like ours? Does it start getting hard to continue to have the heart of Christ beating in you that is merciful? Mercy sees the pathetic condition of another human being. Grace gives it favor it doesn't deserve. Grace acts. Grace is the good act, mercy is the kindness. That's being like God, your father, that your father, God is a merciful. No, he's rich in mercy. Ephesians two and verse four, he's rich in mercy and we're to be like our father in that same way, called to love one another. And that's all through the new Testament, isn't it? We see that over and over demands that we be hospitable. Like Publius. Caring for them. He's making sure the fires are going. He brings them into his home. We don't know how many of the 276 brings them in to his home. An amazing sight. He doesn't know them. We cannot say, actually, according to Scripture, that we love somebody if we neglect care and concern and compassion and help. I like what Paul Tillich said. There is no love that does not become help. They're verbs as it's defined in scripture. Oh we we, we like to vaunt our feelings, don't we? Oh I love I don't know. Justin Bieber. Christianity or Christian hospitality flows from a heart filled with the love of God, expressing itself in practical ways to total strangers, and especially toward fellow Christians. We see that, as I said, Hebrews 13, 1 to 2, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. By the way, back to the Good Samaritan, it strikes me, what did the Jews think of Samaritans? So do you think maybe there's a reason he chose to have Samaritan do the good work while he's talking to his fellow Jews? Maybe. I think so. Let... Brotherly love, continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's a New Testament command. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So we always talk about, you know, we should be hospitable because you might be entertaining an angel. I don't know if that will actually happen unless and until we actually practice the kind of hospitality that we see in Scripture totally selfless and self-sacrificial it cost me something either of my time or money or both maybe some possessions maybe some of my clothes maybe a ride romans 12:13 says contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality We won't go there. We don't have time, but you could remember Acts 2, verse 42 to 47. When the Holy Spirit came and the church was born, what did they do? How did they act amongst themselves? What did they do? They shared everything that they had. This wasn't the birthplace of socialism or communism. This was wherever there's a need. If I can help, I want to help. It's that absolute thoughtlessness of self it's thinking outside of yourself on behalf of the needs of somebody else and that's a real challenge for us isn't it but we're to contribute to the needs of the Saints and seek to show hospitality so it involves obviously more than sentimental feelings obviously Like God, it's a love that acts. It's a a love that does. And we can see that too all throughout Scripture. It acts to meet the needs of of another. The greatest act of kindness, the greatest act of goodness is to help someone with their greatest need. The greatest need that they have is reconciliation with God, forgiveness through Christ. I really like James two fourteen to 17 in this regard. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I mean, is that legit faith? If it doesn't respond outwardly on behalf of the needs of other people... Verse 15, if a brother or sister, so we're talking about Christians here, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, we might add, I'll pray for you. Yeah. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This isn't how you're saved, it's the evidence that you are in fact saved. That you do have the living Christ in you because this is exactly what he would be doing, yeah? He uses this body as his media to show the affections of his own heart. This voice, these eyes, these hands, these feet. No one's safe here. Does anybody feel safe? Well, that doesn't apply to me. Boy, I'm glad. First John 317, if anyone has the world's goods, if, if you're able to supply the need of another person and God allows the intersection so you understand what that need is and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Because God's love acts. It acts. That's what it does. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in what? Deed and truth. The heart of someone who has the love of God, the love of the mercy of the Father, the mercy of Christ, should have the compassion and the concern and the caring. For others is clearly the point here. But it shouldn't be something that they're coerced in because it's a matter of duty. The heart's not in the right place then. This isn't an issue of work. So the, the men that saved the woman out of the car that's being drawn down into the sinkhole didn't get together and say, you know, we really ought to go over there and do something. You know, we really, you know what, we really, but let's pray first, shall we? It's uh, maybe not even a word spoken. Maybe, maybe they didn't even look at each other. Maybe they didn't even, even, weren't even cognizant of other guys that were going to help. Maybe they just went. Maybe they just Grab hold, maybe even at risk to their own life. It's thing might drag me down. See, if we take that moment to think, what happens? We're done seeing Christ in us, yeah? Just do it. Don't let yourself think about it. This is going to cost me. I don't have the time. In this economy, don't have the money to spare. Show hospitality to one another instead of out of being coerced out of a sense of duty. First Peter four nine says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. If you're grumbling, you haven't got the heart of Christ. You don't. If it's troublesome to you, if it's costing you, who do you think set it up providentially that it's going to cost you? (laughs) Did it cost Jesus Christ something to show his love? Can anybody match that? Is there a lesson there for us? It cost him his life, and that's what he requires from us. Not to put ourselves to physical death, but that my, my life does not belong to me anymore. I have plenty of adult years that I spent living for myself. I get that. I understand that world. He put that person to death. It rises up every once in a while in the flesh in all of its ugliness and selfishness and indulgence, but that's the one who has to continue to be put to death so that my life can be used for the sake of other people. And we do it without grumbling. Hospitality is good fruits manifesting themselves from a heart of love, mercy, kindness, and goodness. There it is for you. It's the good fruits that are talked about in James three seventeen to 18. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace the reasons the reason that past cultures ancient cultures took hospitality so seriously is because god takes hospitality very seriously We can see that in the Olivet Discourse. In the eschatological passage of our Lord as He stood on the Mount of Olives and talked about end times, He's about to leave. This is rather important. In Matthew 25, verse 34, He's talking now to the crowd He's talking about the judgment and he says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food right now. They're going, wait, what? I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. What? What's he talking about? When do we do that? Did you do that? Did you? I don't remember doing that for Jesus. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them and say what? Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's the good part. You want to hear the rest? We need to, don't we? Verse forty-one. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food, I was thirsty and you gave me no drink, I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick, and and in prison and you did not visit me then they will answer saying lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you then he will answer them and saying truly i say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The last thing we want to do is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and Levites, the religious ones did in Jesus' day, and that is redefine who the neighbor is. He's just talking about among Christians. The rest of these people, these strangers... They're on their own. Would you or I want to stand before the king? And he said, you know, some of those that you turned away from, some of those that you've scorned out of your pride, out of your arrogance and selfishness, are some of your brothers and sisters. Had you served them, you would have known that. We don't like things that cost us, do we? Time, money, possessions. We like to say that they belong to whom? Oh, it's all God's. You know, if we could just stop saying that, we'd be ahead, wouldn't we? I like the principle in verse 8, hospitality begets hospitality. The reciprocal nature of hospitality, you see, the The principle is, if you and I practice hospitality, guess what happens? It's catchy, isn't it? Yeah. It should start here. It should start with me. It should start with us. And watch what happens. Verse 8, It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, Wait a second. He's got dysentery and a fever? And he's putting his hands... I mean, he's even just even going into the room. Y'all familiar with dysentery? He put his hands on him. Why is that in the Bible? Surely he masked up. Surely he gloved up, yeah? I don't think that he had that available to him. This is the apostle with the faith in the middle of a hurricane. Another of the many proves that Luke's, the author here, the veracity of what Luke has to say is the medical technical terms that he actually used to define what he has here, dysentery, dysenteria in the Greek, and that was very distinct. It's an inflammation of the intestines, bloody diarrhea, bacteria, virus, a parasitic amoeba, which they believe back then came from unsanitary uh, use and consumption of the goat milk, and so on. It's just amazing when we look into the accuracy of the human writer, And this is just yet another example of it. Hospitality, by the way, as we see in verse 9 and 10, engenders gratitude, honor, and generosity. Now look what happened. They were shown unusual kindness when they showed up. Then they're shown hospitality by Publius. They're brought into his house. Paul finds out that his father is sick, and he just goes to him and lays hands on him and prays and heals him. What happens after that? This thing's catchy. Watch this. And when this had taken place, when the healing had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also, what? Greatly honored us greatly. And when we were all about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This just continues to spread. When we close up in our selfishness and hold on to the things that are ours and close in on our own immediate families and don't move out like this, then these things begin to dry up. But they see somebody risk in their life. They see Paul, first of all, crawling out of the freezing Mediterranean Sea and straight away picking up sticks to keep the fire going. They're showing unusual kindness. He's noticing that on their part. These are barbarians. These are uneducated, uncultured people. They're uncivilized. And look at what they're doing. And now, so Publius invites them to their home. It just keeps going. They come into his home. Oh, your father's sick. Yes. Dysentery. He's got dysentery. Where is he? Goes in. There's no thought. If you spend time to think, what happens? Oh, you know what could happen? He needs to be quarantined, right? At the very least. So the emphasis on the Maltese hospitality is striking. And so is it with the apostle, but that's been his that's been his act all the way along. Hospitable. Helpful, merciful. When Christians are kind and caring and helpful, doing good things for people, God blesses them, doesn't He? And it's contagious. Proverbs 25, 21-22. If your enemy is hungry, show them where the rescue mission is. No, the food pantry. Send them there. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Burning hot uh, coals, the nearest we can figure, is you will. It will humble him to see that. Have you ever had an unsolicited, undeserved kindness come to you? Didn't that kind of humble you? How about if it was from somebody who was an enemy or just somebody that was just estranged from you for whatever reason you see the reciprocity of hospitality of kindness of goodness we need to keep that pump primed wouldn't you say today in our country in this culture we don't need to close in on each other, post some things on Facebook about how nasty all those strangers are, shut the windows, shut the doors, they're on their own. Wow. <laughs> What's happened to us? Whoa, we're patriots, doggone it. Follow the rule of law, I say. Really? Really? What happened when you couldn't? Christ passed you by? Sort of scorned you a little bit? Would that we had our head in the right place and not other places. That which feeds the mind conditions the heart and it steals you against something or it keeps it tender and fleshly. So that you can receive and give the mercies of God in Christ. The compassion of Christ. The servant heartedness of Christ. If we struggle with this, we should be reading Philippians 2 5 to 8 over and over again. The kenosis, the emptying, when he came, he divested himself of all of the things he had full right to as God. To do what? I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And that, my friends, is supposed to be us. This proverb, by the way, well, one theologian put it so far as to put it this way, the law of love, that's what this is, is not expounded more spiritually in any single precept either of Christ or of his apostles, then in this exhortation, love your enemy. Charles Bridges says, in what heathen code of morals shall we find this perfection of love? Every system concedes largely to selfishness. We do things because we kind of feel good about it, or they're one of us, either of our family or of or of our tribe. It concedes largely to selfishness. None reach beyond loving those that I love. And yet we find Jesus in another of his discourses in Matthew, earlier in chapter 5, saying this, But I say to you, love whom? Your enemies. That's hard, Lord. I know it's hard. Look at who I came down to love. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The best way for you to get that hardened heart off of somebody that's actually persecuting you is to pray for them. Pray for them. Don't let your mind take a nosedive into that swamp of how wretched they are, how wrong they are, how bad they are. Don't go there. Pray for them. I've been very challenged the past couple of weeks. Some of you know about that. Very challenged. A man casting himself in a role of my adversary. And I'm I'm Desperately seeking the Lord and trying to apply these principles because I so desperately don't want to offend him. I so desperately want to look like my Lord in Christ. I so desperately want to understand what real love looks like. I want to feel it for a moment, just a moment. Shut off the TV, put away that tablet and pray. Pray. I'm talking to myself. So don't pick up your stones. He says in verse, the verses after that, for if you love, though he reasons this out, it's very logical. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Some of us feel so good because we're so loving in our families or in our little tribes at church. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Probably even more so. If you greet one, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Proverbs sixteen seven says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Pray for him, pray for her who persecute you who oppose you are making your life absolutely miserable and watch what God does. It's remarkable. How does he do that? My whole perspective has changed. I notice, as Kathleen pointed out this morning in First Hour, a peace that just overwhelms you when you're doing things God's way, when you actually not only talk about Jesus, but you actually act like him. So, here's what I put together for myself and I'm going to share it with you. This is the unsavory legacy of a heart unchecked and unattended by love. Friends, this is my heart. Here's what you have to do. Every conflict, every sinful attitude or action starts where? In, in the heart, in the mind, right? It's a thought. Somebody says something to you, somebody does something to you. Okay, so it's in the thought. It becomes, and these are alliterated, of course. It becomes an annoyance. That annoyance unchecked and not met with the love of Christ becomes aggravation. See this is a progression. Remember that. It becomes aggravation. What happens if you leave the aggression alone without allowing it to meet with the love of Christ? It turns into what? It turns into animosity. And now it's tough to shake this guy out of my head. Animosity. When that fully ferments, when it reaches its endpoint, is sinful. Anger. You don't have to literally commit it because Jesus made it clear in that same place in the Sermon on the Mount. You've just committed silent murder. You've got murder in your heart. And that's where it starts. So what we practice then is practice as soon as it comes up as an annoyance, deal with it right then and there. Don't let it get to, this is aggravating me or it'll turn into animosity. Now you hate somebody. That's how Jesus would divine it. You hate somebody. You're a hater. You, do, you hate somebody long enough, you've, you've just killed them in your heart. Sinful anger. Rage, even. Bridges says this, Charles Bridges, No man ever conquered his enemy's heart by revenge, many by love. Was it not in this way that the Almighty Savior dissolved the hardness of our unyielding hearts? (laughs) Let the effort be tried. Our chief aim, therefore, must be to gain the victory of meekness and love the uncooperative, troublesome, unreasonableness of our enemies will thus become a great advantage to us. What? We shall be indebted to them for some measure of conformity to our divine master. End quote. You know what? I'm indebted to him. Because I'm hard-pressed now by his call to be like him in my response. And not just what I say or act, but here, the place that's most important to him. The body just gives expression to what greatly overcomes my heart. It occurs to us that someone that unrelentingly opposes us through no fault of our own, mind you, becomes the very means that God has to challenge us to respond like Jesus Christ. See the Master at work in our hearts, shaping us into the likeness of our Savior. We become at that point beholden to them, then don't we? When's the last time we saw it that way? you know what, thank you for being such a stinker. (laughs) It gave me this awesome opportunity. I don't know how I could have had a better opportunity to work on something that God exposed to me needed work. I didn't know it was there. Paul said, I didn't know I coveted until the law came. He exposed those things. He's exposing it in you and I. For good or for bad? For good. That's why I said last week, for those who made God their dwelling place and He's become their refuge, bad is no longer bad anymore. The, 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 the characterization, the category changes. It's actually good. That it, At that moment might be a mystery to us. Loss is no longer loss. It's gain in some other form. You see? But what happens to us when some unrelenting persecutor comes along? Somebody's really, they're not going away. Well, didn't Paul pray about something like that? Like three times or something? And what was God's response? Yeah, first we could say, read between the lines. I'm not taking it away, Paul. I'm at work here. I got my lab coat on. My grace is sufficient for you boy, if you don't understand this principle, that almost sounds cold. And then Paul understood, it's in my weakness that you're made strong. I get it. I can look more like you. He's so regretted. Look at 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 15. He so regretted who he was as a persecutor of the church and a persecutor of Christ to look, have the opportunity to look more like him. If you pray that prayer, hold on to your hat. It's going to come. It's going to come. He'll challenge you. But usually we'll say, not this way, not that. No, exactly that. Because He knows just exactly what you have the most difficulty getting out from under, looking like Him. So in that sense, I guess we're indebted to them. We're disciples of Him who died for His enemies. And as one writer said, was not this his own obedience to his own law? Uh If it had not been for the love of God, a love that acts on behalf of his enemies, we would be forever lost. Forever lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you show us this morning, how big this word hospitality is. Lord, I am so convicted with this. I'm so humbled by it. And you know that, Lord. You know how you challenge us. You know how great a challenge it is for us because we are still sinners, but we're sinners saved by grace. Thank you, Lord, for those of us who have come to the place of our recognizing, no, I, I can't seem to change myself. We know we need a Savior. We need a rescue. We need a deliverer. And then, finding that rescue, our next question is, but who will pay for my previous, my prior sins? Who will pay, indeed, for those yet remaining? Lord, it's you. It's you i pray that every soul that listens here or in some other place to these words that they understand that their only hope is in jesus christ and him crucified by our most inhospitable sinfulness our annoyance that turned to aggravation in his regard, that aggravation turning into full-on animosity, and that becoming the anger that drove the nails through his hands and killed him. But you are risen. You are alive. And because you are, we now have the hope of eternal life in you. Lord, help us. That... As you allow us this time on earth, and we still have to wrestle in our flesh, that you would patiently, O Lord, help us to apply these things in our lives. And that's our way of saying thank you. Oh, thank you, Lord, for the greatest gift of all, the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.